Welcome to ED ECMO. Welcome. Welcome to ED ECMO. This is ED ECMO. Hello, ED ECMO. This is Zach Shiner. And today you're going to hear an interview I did with Kyle Gunnerson of the University of Michigan. Now, the University of Michigan has been a big part of the history of ECMO. Bob Bartlett, back in the 70s, first ECMO-placed neonatal patient. Uh, and their program has just through the years been so instrumental to the success of ECPR and ECMO. And Kyle Gunnerson has now been a big part of the next phase of this, about how University of Michigan has now had an NIH-sponsored grant to do out-of-hospital look at, at cardiac arrest patients. They're going to randomize them to either University of Michigan or outside hospital. And the big thing here is that they are studying whether emergency physicians can do this, whether emergency physicians can successfully cannulate patients in less than a half hour. And so today, I want you to listen to this with the idea of the Aroka trial and, and all the, the nuances of this. But I also want you to just think, like, how can this affect my program? Because a lot of this is, how do you start a program? How do you take, like, what Kyle did was be, start a total ICU, a new ICU in their ER. He started a, a training program to get physicians up to speed on cannulation. And so about how you start a program, this is a lot about what, what Kyle is going to talk about. And then secondarily, he goes into how they run their resuscitations, which which is really cutting-edge medicine. So as you listen today, I want you to take a thought of both of those things. Let's jump right into this. Kyle Gunnarsson, the Aroka trial at University of Michigan. Yeah, so um, Aroka is our, it's a, it's a feasibility trial. Uh, basically, you know, it's sponsored by the NIH, NHLBI. And basically, we're trying to get 20 patients in the next two years uh, looking at the feasibility of uh, an ED physician-based uh, ED ECMO or ECPR model. Uh, essentially, what this first phase is, is for all out-of-hospital cardiac arrests within a certain radius of, of uh, the university, they're going to be randomized in the field. Uh, and either the, the standard arm, which is currently staying at the, uh, at the site of the arrest for 30 minutes following ACLS algorithms, and then transporting to the nearest hospital, nearest ED, uh, or they get early randomization within five minutes of uh, being on scene in CPR uh, to be transported to an ECMO-capable uh, health system, which is uh, University of Michigan. And then once they arrive uh, at, the, at the University of Michigan, uh, we'll review the, the patient's scenario, uh, you know, how they arrested, witnessed arrest, uh, non-witnessed, you know, initial rhythm, et cetera. And then our current standard guidelines for what we would normally consider patients uh, to put on VA ECMO. Um, and if the patient meets inclusion criteria for our own institutional guidelines, we'll then, you know, uh, activate that system and, and we'll uh, put the patient on VA ECMO. The difference is from what we normally would have done in the past was this pathway would have been completely uh, dependent upon the availability of one of our uh, inpatient uh, cardiac surgeons, uh, VA ECMO cannulators. Uh, and if they were unavailable, we weren't able to offer this service. Wow, that is, that is awesome. That is so awesome. I mean, this is something that we've been thinking about and dreaming about, and you guys actually made it happen. That is, that is incredible. 
Well, we're in the process. We'll see. We just started uh, the AROCA trial started uh, enrolling patients in mid-May. Uh, and uh, we've, of course, like anything you study, as soon as the uh, the trial starts, the disease stops. And so we've stamped out cardiac arrest in the Ann Arbor area since opening the trial. Uh, we only had one patient. Oh, that so. is awesome. Okay, so you mentioned a couple of things there that just, uh, I mean, are, are totally right or on in my mind. We have these, these case series, and we've had really great outcomes, and we've had, you know, but... The problem is we're not comparing apples to apples, and we've done retrospective studies, and we've tried to use these, you know, logistic regression to eliminate patients or, or cohort patients into various groups. The advantage of what you guys have is now a prospective trial, right? A prospective trial where they're randomly decided whether they're going to go to an ECMO center or not. Can you just speak a little bit to the advantages of that forum and then also the limitations that you guys are going to have with, with the idea of not only having a patient that goes to a different hospital and trying to assess whether they're getting the same ICU care as someone else or the same ED care, but also of just how they're going to be deciding on who's going to go where. Yeah, so, you know, you you mentioned a great point here, and I, I wish I could tell you this was going to be the answer that we've been waiting for, but it's it's not. What we're going to do here, hopefully in the next uh, two years with our, you know, our, our, our small number of patients, you know, we're not going to be powered enough to, to really show that there's, you know, there's going to be much of a potentially difference in outcome, even though it might be with only 20 patients. What we want to show is that it's feasible that an ED-based team can safely cannulate uh, a patient that you know meets criteria for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, refractory out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, in the ED in a time frame that has been shown from past observational or case reports trials that would give our patients the best chance for a, a good neurologic recovery and you know an outcome. And so that's why we picked uh, within an hour of cardiac arrest, and we. We uh, gave the first 30 minutes to our EMS providers and then the second 30 minutes to us and the ED to get them cannulated. So all we're trying to show uh, with, with Aroka uh, is that the ED docs can slave cannulate somebody on VA and initiate VA ECMO within 30 minutes. Uh, and then the secondary analysis, we'll be looking at outcomes. Uh, but once we can show that us as ED physicians can do this safely, you know, especially going through courses, you know, like reanimate that you guys have been doing for, you know, the last three or four years, you know, now we can show that this really is something we should be doing. The next step will be doing the multi-center randomized trial to where we put together a group of of health systems that can perform uh, ED ECMO, uh, you know, run by the ED docs in a, in a timely fashion. And then we can answer some of these questions that you mentioned. You know, what are the right, you know, patients? What are the, you know, what are the, what do we do when we get them back? Do we go to cath lab within, you know, a, a certain time frame or not? Do we cool them down? And what temperature should we cool them down? You know, now we can start asking those questions. But until then, you know, we have to lay a groundwork to where we're not reliant upon availability of others that have to come in from home to do this. Awesome. So tell us, tell us about the training. How are you getting a group of, you know, a residency, a program that has a lot of docs? How are you getting your program up to speed to be able to cannulate these people in a timely fashion? So that's that's another fantastic point about this. Uh, we're taking our cohort of, of cannulators, our, our EC3 attendings, and our EC3 is our emergency critical care center or our ICU uh, 
uh, based in the ED. It's a nine-bed ICU. Uh, we're manned with attendings that are there 24-7. The attendings are either intensivists or we've put them through an intense two-day FCCS course, and then we have ongoing uh, critical care CMEs that are, are run by ourselves every uh, every month. And so it kind of lifts the uh, the critical care uh, fund of knowledge to a different level for our attendings at Roundover and in our EC3. From that pool of around 25 attendings, you know, we've selected 15 um to go through, they're self-selected, they're interested in doing this, to go through the cannulation course. And so we'll put them through a two-day simulation, cannulation, and initiation of ECMO. This is in in, uh, in collaboration with our cardiac surgery uh, uh, group, uh, with our ECMO director, medical director, or surgical director, uh, Dr. Haft. Uh, Dr. Bartlett was also a very important part of this, supporting us with this, and, and our ECMO team. So we'll go over the basics of uh, the physiology of, of VA ECMO, and then we'll also go through the nuts and bolts of actually, you know, picking the appropriate cannula size, going through the actual process of of the cannulation, you know, ultrasound guided, uh, you know, uh, vessel identification, how to verify appropriate cannulation, appropriate vessel size, uh, etc. At the same time, our nurses are going through the same type of uh, training about priming uh, an ECMO circuit. Uh, now, we currently have a centromagnetic circuit, and so we had, have traditionally had that dry primed. We've just had a new ECMO uh, clinical educator who's supporting us with a, you know, a wet, clear prime that's there all the time in the ED. But our nurses are still going through how to troubleshoot and how to uh, prime a circuit. That's awesome. So, so the idea here is that you're going to train them and then retrain them or, or certainly just see if they retain their skills, um, knowing full well that, you know, the chance of them doing one every couple months is probably pretty low. They're probably going to get one maybe every four months, every six months or so. Is that about kind of the, the thought process there? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it could be potentially feasible. You could have one or two docs end up getting, you know, two or three active patients or real life patients and another cohort not seeing anybody for a, for a year. So we actually, we just finished one this morning. Uh, every month we put on an in situ uh, simulation, which we go down into our resuscitation bays and we run from the beginning. We have the early activation in the field. We have uh, you know, paramedics push in our stretcher with our active uh, simulator or our patient with Lucas, you know, chest compressions going on. We then transfer them over to our own, you know, bay or our own bed. We go through uh, how we would normally run a code and we have our code team running the code. And then we have our, our cannulating team completely separate from the code team that are focused on, you know, getting the cannulas in. Uh, we run through the entry criteria, if it's patient's a candidate or not. And then we you know, just go through the same type of situation we would in the simulation center. However, it's right there in a resuscitation phase. And we try and, you know, simulate all the chaos and the noise as you normally would uh, and put them through it. And so that that is going on once a month. And so we, you know, hopefully we can get all the the cannulators through that. And if not, in the three months upstairs and put them through our, our simulation course. Yeah, one of the things that I'm proud of in our field as far as where we've moved in ECMO is that I think we've we've gotten better at the the far ends. So in in my mind there are three major 
pillars that you need to have a successful out-of-hospital eCPR program. First is pre-hospital. You've got to maintain perfusion from their arrest time till they get to the ER. And then in the ER or in the ICU, wherever the, the or in the cath lab for Dimitri, um, you need to be able to safely initiate ECMO and quickly. And then the third thing is the whole ICU care. You know, you can't, you got to have that buy-in upstairs because this is not a two-day thing. This is a, a, a place where you've got to be willing to keep them on the pump for seven days. You've got to be willing to delay neuroprognostication. And you, I mean, at Michigan, you guys have all three of those components, it seems to have been taken care of, now focusing mostly on that middle component because you have the opposite components, the pre-hospital and the ICU care already taken care of. Yes, you're absolutely right. We're very fortunate here that we did, did have that. All right. So tell us about your ICU. Is, is this, so you've got one in the ER that the, the ECMO patients are not going to stay there. They're going to go up to your CTICU, I'm assuming. Yeah. So, you know, um, one of the nice things that we're fortunate with here with our, with our EC3, with our ED based in the, in, in the, our ED based ICU is that, uh, we have a very select group of nurses who really want to do this and are really motivated to to do this. And they, you know, not only do we take care of our ECMO patients there for, a, you know, a short amount of time, but we take care of all comers. Uh, we have dialysis patients. We, you know, have cardiogenic shock patients. We have septic patients, of course. So the skill set of these nurses are very good and they're very motivated. The same way with our medical team. So our, 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 our docs and our PAs and our residents and our pharmacists and our respiratory therapists, the list goes on and on. We really are a functioning, full functioning uh, ICU down there in the ED. So with our ECMO patients, we know that, or we, you know, our, our ICU upstairs, our cardiovascular ICU is full all the time. And it puts a lot of pressure on getting cases, beds ready for cases every day. And now to add a another outside pressure, you know, of these patients going upstairs, you know, that adds another burden for our cardiovascular ICU nurses and, and surgeons who may have to cancel a case if we have to scramble for a bed, you know, in a short amount of time to get them out of the ED up to the ICU. So one of the things that we want to take now after we get the initial um, VA ECMO initiation, the first three or four hours going, we want to move towards a nurse management model, uh, a bedside nurse model of uh, uh, ECMO management in the ED for the first 24 hours. So what we'll have is our nurses going through the, the same type of uh, inpatient uh, ICU bedside nurse model training that we have upstairs. Uh, we'll do that same type of training down here in the ED in our EC3 for our bedside nurses. So they'll be trained in the same fashion, the same way that our cardiovascular IC nurses are and our surgical IC nurses are. And we'll also have a core group of ED physicians who are intensivists who do manage ECMO uh, to to round on these patients in the ED uh, and help manage these patients for the first 24 hours or until there's less pressure upstairs. So in a scenario where it could maybe the weekend and we have bed availability upstairs, this patient may go up to the ICU within two or three hours. However, if it's in the middle of the week and we have no beds upstairs, we can now help alleviate some of that pressure and keep this patient in the ED in our EC3 for uh, 24 hours if we need to. Oh man, that is that is great. I did not realize that about uh, what you all are doing. So uh, you, I mean, the, 
I think there are big advantages to this, and that is that you are vested in that patient. You are much more vested than the, than the people upstairs who have just learned about some cardiac arrest who is down for 60 minutes, and, 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 and they just don't have the same sort of feeling like this patient has a chance to survive. Not to mention, those first 24 hours are so key. Uh, I find myself in you know a community-based practice going up to the ICU and just staying there all night making sure that this patient is doing well when we've still got patients down in the ER. So there is a huge advantage to being able to be the person that's managing that patient and passing them on to one of your colleagues who also has a similar vested interest in in just managing all the small details that are so important for these uh, eCPR patients. Let's You're let's talk right. the, one, the one thing the one, sorry to interrupt you but the one thing that we found for you know just in the last couple of years is that you know our our inpatient cardiovascular ICU intensivists we typically don't deal with cardiac arrest. I mean it's it's a rare, relatively rare event, and we especially don't deal without a hospital cardiac arrest that go on ECMO. And so following you know certain things that we normally would follow for out of, for just cardiac arrest in general, such as cooling, you know how low do we go, how long do we go, you know, and what other type of neuroprognosticators, you know, should we look at and not really, you know, uh, use as we, as a neuroprognosticator of somebody who had a, say, a circ arrest in the OR uh, after a procedure. So these are all things that, you know, the, you know, we have to re-educate our intensivists upstairs as well. So you're absolutely right. Having that continuity by us early on, is, I think, is very, very important as that learning curve, you know, upstairs, you know, uh, you know is, is achieved. Yeah. Okay. This totally true. And when when you start talking about the learning curve, I, it, it brings up I think an important point that we should mention here, and that is, you know, with all the data worldwide, we're talking about trying to compare apples to apples. You get some studies that show these big benefits of ECMO, and we know that that's not true. That we're not comparing the same patients. We're taking the very best of the ECMO patients, and that maybe the benefit of ECMO is good, but it's certainly not as good as it looks on on some of those papers. The f- the flip side, though, is equally true that these dependent variables that we're looking at can also make ECMO data look very bad. And we saw that in the Korea papers earlier this year. That you know, no difference in outcome. In cardiogenic shock, we see, okay, ACS is actually bad for ECMO. I mean, all these things that just just intuitively don't really make sense. And so I think the same thing we need to kind of look at this. We're so hopeful. We're so hopeful. It's a prospective trial. We've got patients going to different, you know, to a, a, a mega institution. But on the flip side, there are downsides to IROCA. And I was just wondering maybe, because the major thing that I see is that you are starting a program. You have, you have docs that are, that are going through simulators, and then they're going to start initiating this on patients. And I just hope, can you speak to kind of what some of the limitations of what IROCA is going to be and, and potential confounders for the data that we get out of it? Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Now, there's several components to IROCA, which actually I, th- I don't think we've, we've identified with that, what these uh, acronyms stands for. It's extracorporeal cardiopulmonary resuscitation for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. So that's what the IROCA trial stands for. So some of the things that we're doing here is to help standardize, and you mentioned this earlier, our resuscitation in general. And at U of M, we've uh, 
you know, where ACLS is good for the masses, it's not individualized. You know, you have a, a certain around you go shock compression, epi, shock compression, amio, uh, et cetera. But we don't really have good guidelines to see if you're actively achieving perfusion, as you mentioned, which is so important. So we have a goal-directed CPR uh, underlying uh, our resuscitation, not only in the you know in the ED, but also in the field, where we use end-tidal CO2 uh, to show that we are, are maintaining good chest compressions. And we'll use this with our mechanical CPR, which we use as a Lucas device, but any other rooms could work just fine. If we're not achieving end-tidal CO2s that are you know, greater than 20, then we'll move down this algorithm of moving over to active compression, decompression, or manual chest compressions, or things like a, a rescue pod where you have uh, impedance uh, or decreasing intrathoracic pressure. Um, we'll use those uh, adjunct uh, devices to help with our effective you know, chest compressions or, or perfusion. We'll also guide our epinephrine doses based on our diastolic blood pressure. We'll try and get an A-line in, as you mentioned, you know, in, in what you guys do, we do the same thing. We get our uh, 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 smaller-sized introducers into our uh, femoral vessels, our artery and our vein, and we'll transduce a, uh, an arterial blood pressure right away. We'll titrate our epidoses based on a diastolic blood pressure of greater than 35. And all of this is, you know, giving us extra time, maybe under tenants here or there. We don't know. Nobody studied this. But that ongoing good quality CPR, we think, is uh, key to having good successful outcomes with, you know, then, you know, you know, cannulating the patient up to, you know, put on ECMO within the next 30 minutes or so. So that's one thing that we're controlling here where a lot of places before haven't really done that or haven't really, you know, guided their CPR to this. We think that's going to be important. So that may be, you know, uh, going forward, that may be a component to this. That's and not all institutions are going to be familiar with this process and an advanced critical care uh, uh, care that's, that's being delivered that we're able to provide here at University of Michigan. Okay, that is awesome stuff, Kyle. Like, I, 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 I want to just spend a second teasing it out because you, you mentioned so many cool things there. You initially start off with the traditional ACLS measures, but very quickly uh, you put in an A-line. You decide epinephrine dosing based on diastolic pressure. You measure your chest compression quality, and I believe you mentioned end-tidal CO2 is the metric that you use. And if you are not getting this sufficiently with the mechanical chest compression device, then you change things up. You either use a, uh, you know, a human chest compressor. You either use compression decompression with a, like suction cup type of uh, model. And additionally, you will use the rescue pod uh, in those cases. Tell me that decision. I want the, those three things. Like, how do you decide mechanical, manual chest compressions? active compression, decompression, and rescue pod. Where does that fit in your mind? Yeah, so that's a good point. Um, so far, we've been lucky that we haven't had to go too far down that that tree. Usually, the probably the biggest thing that we've had to uh, kind of change in our current uh, or, or, our, or our pre, you know, from the pre and post type of goal-directed CPR category would be dosing 
using our epinephrine based on diastolic pressure. We probably used some more push-dosed uh, epi, more or less, actually, uh, based on that model than we've done before. We usually get very good compressions with our Lucas, uh, and if not, for whatever reason, for size or or, or not, we you know manual compressions uh, tend to um, work really well. We have gone down, you know, if, if we're not meeting, you know, our good endpoints with, you know, our entitled CO2, we have gone down that other path with active decompression, uh, compression, um, uh, and a rescue pod uh, r relatively early within the process. We have a, um, a poster that's in all of our resuscitation base to where it kind of outlines how we follow this. So it's, you know, right in front of you. Uh, of, of, if, if these traditional um, mechanisms aren't working to achieve our endpoints, our entitled CO2 and our diastolic pressures, we'll quickly move on to the adjuncts. Uh, but for the most part, patients were able to achieve that with our, you know, our first line uh, therapy. Oh, man, I, I think that's so awesome. And we're always trying to tweak our uh, resuscitation strategy. And I mean, this is like classic you know, interpretation of resuscitation literature, right? Re rescue pod, big trial, no benefit. However, a lot of us, myself included, think this thing works. I mean, physiologically, it makes sense. And then we start talking about dosing epi. You can, you know, there's trials all over the place telling us various data on what whether epi or not, whether epi works or not. But what we don't know is whether using you know, directed epinephrine based on diastolic pressure or, you know, other metrics that you might want to use, that that can offer benefit. So um, total agreement from my standpoint on, on how you guys are running this. One of the interesting things here is going to be just trying to tease out what is the benefit from your management in the ER, meaning that you have this additional therapy of different resuscitation strategies as well as the initiation of ECMO. Uh, and tr trying to tease out which of those things are beneficial um, compared to the community hospitals where the patients are going will be a bit difficult. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And that's why this this trial is not th – this really, you're 100% you're correct. We think with this, you know, the small gr group of 20 patients, this is going to ask a lot more questions and generate a lot more uh, future studies than actually provide answers, you know, because this – this is really going to set the stage to where can ED docs do this in a feasible time frame? Can we even be in the same room talking about doing eCPR done by initiated by ED docs only? It, if it takes us, you know, an hour and a half and we have poor outcomes to, you know, put somebody on ECMO on average, then we we may need to reconsider this whole, you know, this whole process. But if it turns out that we can feasibly do this in, in our appointed time frame that has shown benefit, well, then, then we can take this to the next level and say, yes, ED docs that are trained in this can safely be the leaders in the, the cannulation and then early initiation phase of, of ECMO or eCPR. And, you know, now we can start asking those questions about what's our goals for our, you know, our CPR prior to, you know, ECMO, you know, what's you know, the appropriate time limit, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that's why I think, you know, this is exciting just because, uh, you know, it is a feasibility trial that's going to set the stage for a ton of more questions going down the road. 
All right, Kyle, such a, such a great uh, interview. Uh, so many good things. Let's just sort of wrap this up. We've got the Roca trial. It's going to be hypothesis generating. It's going to use not just the metric of survival. I mean, that's so true. We see this in, in, in all these different trials, that we're not just looking on survival of the patient. We're looking on, can we do this? And then the next iteration, can we do this better? And then the next iteration is, how do we set up programs such like the University of Michigan, where you can incorporate pre-hospital, the hospital-based, and the ICU care all into one. So big things coming from Michigan. They will have a whole group of of docs also in the next two years that are trained in ED, ECPR. So thank you, Kyle Gunnarsson. Really appreciate it. Thank you, University of Michigan. Thank you, Bob Bartlett, for 40-something years ago starting this whole thing off. From Zach Shiner, Joe Belezzo, and Scott Weingart, this was EDX. (laughs) 